scared of you motherfuckers. I'm gonna tell you something straight off the motherfucking press. I ain't coming for no foolishness. And I'm blessed. You don't understand. I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. The pre-roll for today is, you should be very, very selfish about the people that you decide to bring into your world. And that was said by today's guest, Tony, the creator of Tones Pass. Okay. Hey, listeners. So today we'll be talking about how to earn your dream income and build generational wealth. So today we have my good friend, Tony. Um... I'm sure the listeners probably know you because you know everybody. <laughs> I get around. So, yeah. <laughs> so we'll start off by letting you introduce yourself. Cool, cool. Uh, and Ashley's somewhat joking, but literally we've made like five or six super random connections through yeah. mutual friends in the last year. So, so I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I love when my circles collide. Um, <laughs> pleasure to be talking to everyone today. My name is Tony Awujadu. Um, I'm a high performance coach who helps unfulfilled and impact oriented professionals land their dream jobs, earn their dream income, and learn how to build generational wealth. So we'll talk about what that actually means and how I do it over the course of the conversation. Uh, But I'm an engineer, I'm a problem solver, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a serial accredited investor, and I just love solving hard problems, uh, particularly when those problems have to deal with money and how we can bring more of it into our community. So I um, am born and raised in Maryland, uh, two baby girls that I'm now raising in Maryland. And I had an incredible upbringing, but money was something that we just didn't have a lot of. And I learned how to make it work and hold on to what I had, but I never really learned growing up um, how to make more of it outside of just getting a good job. So now when I look at my two baby girls uh, and realize that I could create a different reality for, for them and their upbringing, I get really, really excited about the stuff that my wife and I are doing around um, financial stability and wealth generation and just bringing a level of sophistication to, um, you know, parenthood that creates a reality where they don't ever have to worry about money if that's something they don't want to worry about. So uh, excited to be talking about all the things that you all will be teeing up over the course of the conversation uh, and honestly just thrilled to be here today. Yes, thank you, Tony. Thrilled to have you. Yeah. (laughs) So let's hop into that first question on the topic of um, getting your dream income. So when is the right time you believe to start negotiations in regard to salary? Yeah, really, really good question. Um, So I I work through my business with a lot of clients who are trying to land their dream jobs. A lot of people come to me burnt out, uh, underpaid, underrecognized, feeling like they're just buried in their organizations and, and aren't in control of their professional success. And I tell them that it starts from the minute they come to me. So even if you haven't even submitted an application somewhere, the negotiation starts internally. If you can't look in the mirror and say, I'm worth 150K, I'm worth 175K, I'm worth 225K, you're going to lose that battle. So I really encourage people before they even put themselves on the market. And even if you're currently gainfully employed and are happy with things like you should have a very honest conversation around, you know, how much you are worth based on the value you bring to your organization, the skills and expertise that you have, and frankly, the needs that you have. We all have different needs and it's okay to go to your employer and say, 
hey, I demand a little bit more because this is my situation. And if you want to retain me, it's what you got to do. So I'd say the negotiation starts now for all of us. And we all should just live in a world that says, here's how much my time is worth. Because while we shouldn't be trading our time for our money, the fact of the matter is, as long as you are an employee of an organization, you are trading your time for your money. Absolutely. So you should know exactly what your ideal salary is before you go into any you know, job identification or application uh, processes. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so then the next question is, what are the benefits of calculating tax withholding amounts? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think about uh, taxes as the biggest expense that we all have. I, I generally ask new clients, what's your biggest expense? People will say their mortgage or their rent or their car. Uh, and, you know, car note, you know, some people, if they're bougie, will say they're, you know, their Fendi purse budget. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the biggest expense that most of us have is actually taxes. Yeah. And we don't often see it because if you're sophisticated enough, it's coming out of your paycheck before you even touch it. Mm -hmm. But for most of us, somewhere between 20 and 30, 35% of all of our income. So 30 something cents of every single dollar goes to the federal government. So it is your biggest expense. And I think the way that you should manage expenses is understanding, you know, when they come, how much they're there, how much is you know being taken out mm -hmm. and what you need to do to kind of adjust for that in terms of other expenses, liabilities and sources of income you have. So um, the benefits in understanding your withholding is that you get to take this really, really large expense and understand how that's going to uh, have implications on your budget, on your living uh, every single month. Now, some people don't like withholding taxes because they want to retain all the money they can and take care of it you know, during tax season. That is perfectly fine. That's actually a, a more financially accretive thing to do because when you do withholdings, you're basically loaning the federal government money with no interest coming back to you. So it makes it easy, but you know, it's a risk to not pay the federal government the money that they want and then mm -hmm. have to shell all that out on the back end. So yeah. it's really personal preference deciding how you do it. But the benefit in at least understanding how much you want to withhold from your paycheck is that you can take that expense and you can kind of, you know, peanut butter smear it across the year mm -hmm. and know exactly how much you'll be expected to pay without having a lump sum towards the end of the year. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Okay, so then next question, you kind of touched on it, honestly, in your answer to that one. Um, but I've heard people say that tax refunds are actually a bad thing, right? Everybody gets excited when they get this, this healthy uh, tax refund check. But um, I've heard a lot of professionals say that they're bad. So do you agree with that sentiment that they're not actually a positive thing? And if so, why is that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, so I'm a capitalist, and I'm a United States citizen, and I take pride in my country. I also can look at my country and notice a bunch of deficiencies. And I think the way that we treat taxes is just so, honestly, corrupt. That's probably the best way to describe it. And it really grinds my gears when I see a bunch of my brothers and sisters around tax season spending their refund money as if it was a gift from the federal government. Mm -hmm. No, my brother and sister, <laughs> you gifted them that money and they're yes. giving it back to you because you paid them more than you needed to. That's literally what a refund is. Yep. So it's dangerous to, to believe that you know we're living in a world where the government's taking what they should and then they give us more than what we need. Um, you know, every refund season, that's not how it works. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the way that I would look about, look at the refund is 
it's money that you overpaid and it's coming back to you. So if you want to spend that on, you know, Gucci, Fendi, Prada, whatever you need to, that's perfect, but you're not spending someone else's money. You're spending your money. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I think there's not, there, there are two different ways that you can handle it. You can pay over the course of the year. Um, and if you're paying the perfect amount, you won't expect a refund. So you'll get a refund of zero. And, and that's how you know that you've managed your, your taxes you know, perfectly. Mm-hmm. If you overpay, it's probably the safest thing to do because you won't get into any tax trouble, but you're not able to invest that money over the course of the year, spend that money, save that money over the course of the year. And when you get that refund, you should still look at it as your money that you spent in the past and you now need to be a good steward of it. Um, or you can just not pay it all and, and pay all of your refund at the, at the end of the year. But you've got to be comfortable enough in your ability to sit on savings, right? Or invest in short-term kind of chunks so that you can you know, liquidate what you need to pay your, your tax burden towards the end of the year. So I don't have direct advice on which one is better. It really comes down to personal preference and, and how you know, diligent that you think you are as a saver and, and payer of taxes. Um, but one thing that's just incredibly important to understand is that a refund is not someone else's money gifted to you. It is your money. Yeah. So regardless of what, how you decide to spend, it's all coming out of your pocket and your hard-earned money, and you're either going to pay it today or pay it tomorrow. Okay, so we're going to kind of switch gears just a little bit. So how and when do you think is the right time to prepare a trust or a state will? Good question. So, um, yeah, let, let me kind of just break down what the two are so um, your listeners are, are um, on the same page. So okay. uh, these are both uh, estate planning tools, and, and your estate is basically everything you own, everything you have uh, you know, rights or possession over. Uh, sometimes it's financial assets, sometimes it's physical assets, uh, sometimes it's your children and who's going to you know, be the guardian if, if something happens to you. So the main difference between a will and a trust is that a will is basically a contract that says, uh, when I am no longer here, when I expire, here's what happens to uh, the people that I am a guardian for and the assets that I own, right? So it's almost like a, a switch, right? It doesn't really have any bearings on life until you expire. Uh, and then, you know, when you pass uh, the, the, the terms that you put in that contract, uh, basically guide what happens to your assets and your dependents. A trust is a bit of a hybrid where you can put rules and regulations uh, on how your assets need to flow while you're living um, and uh, extend that into your death. It also provides a little bit more control. Uh, you can say, you know, for this amount of time, this is going to happen. And if these different conditions are met, that is going to happen. So it's a much more sophisticated tool to plan for your dependents and your assets, both in life and after death. So um, I wouldn't really compare the two. They serve different purposes. And I think, um, remind me the act, the, the direct question, Ashley, is it just the difference between the two? No, how, how do you, how and when do you prepare a trust and or a, a will? Oh, okay, yeah. So, so with that understanding, um, I, I think my guidance to people that are wanting to be proactive about planning for their current or, or late life um, is to think about who you're planning for, right? Uh, if you're super single and have no kids and have no plan on, no plan on having kids, um, you know, and, and don't have a bunch of assets, you probably don't need to put a lot of stock into uh, definitely not a trust, but probably not even a will at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if you are, you know, maybe married with no kids, uh, the will is helpful for the children, but um, generally your, your assets kind of 
directly flow to your spouse if you have the legal contract of marriage. So even if you're married with no kids, it's not you know, a significant priority to have those things in order unless there's someone in your life, a mother or a relative, um, you know, a godchild, someone that is near and dear to you that you do want to plan for. Now, when you start amassing assets and having dependents, especially when you get into the world where you have multiple dependents and you want to be thoughtful about, you know, which dependents get what and when in life they get them, that's when I think it's a good time to, to roll your sleeves up, work with a wealth planner or, or an estate planner, I should say, um, and put those things in place. So it is never a bad thing to have, but it does take some time and money to stand these things up. And I'd encourage you to think about who you're actually planning for before you put a lot of energy into it, as the worst thing you want to do is put a lot of time, money, energy into it, and then, you know, determine down the line that you actually weren't being as thoughtful as you needed to and, and have to redo all that work. Yeah. Okay. okay. So basically, if you single, single, <laughs> that's not something to be thinking about right no. now. So you said Single-ish. it, not me. <laughs> If you single-ish, maybe, but right. definitely if you're married, <laughs> definitely if you have kids to think yes. about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's like a super simplifying way to think about it, but it really is about, you know, whether or not you have people in your life today that you want to plan to pass things over to. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Okay, so for our next question, I'm going to define the word that they use first before I ask this question, because okay. um, this was asked by one of our listeners who has pretty good uh, financial knowledge. So I think she could use certain words that other listeners not, might, might not understand. So first and foremost, I want to define what a fiduciary is. So that is a person or organization that acts on behalf of another person or persons. So the question is, how should you pick a fiduciary? Yeah. So um, thank you for giving us the textbook definition. (laughs) So the fiduciary is going to be the person that manages your trust, right? So another difference between the trust and the will is that the will is just a contract. There there doesn't necessarily need to be a flow of, you know, cash or assets when the will is stood up. Generally, when a trust is stood up, you actually move your assets into the trust. So as they appreciate or depreciate, they're being managed by that trust and the fiduciary is managing the trust. So um, there are a bunch of different ways to find fiduciaries. You can talk to relatives, you can go to financial and wealth planners, you can go to large established firms and and vet people. I think fundamentally, this is someone who is going to be in charge of your finances, your assets, in in, in some cases, what happens to your dependents. So it's got to be someone that you develop trust and rapport with. So I think the best way to you know, fill people out is to have conversations with them, right? So, so if you have people in your circle and your network that, you know, have already gone through this process and uh, are, you know, financially savvy, or maybe have a bunch of relationships, ask them if they have fiduciaries that they like, that they, they'd recommend. If there's a family member and you really, really appreciate how they manage their finances, ask them if they have good relationships. Um, I think one of the most powerful things to do is leverage your network, because generally, if someone is good to someone, you know, they'll be good to you, too. Mm-hmm. And don't feel like any of this has to be binding or, um, you know, super formal, right? You can always change your fiduciary and it doesn't need to be like a, you know, one time sit down interview process, set it and forget it. Uh, you can have many informal chats before you decide to ultimately work with someone. And if things don't work out, go a different direction. Uh, but you should be very, very selfish about uh, the people that you decide to bring into uh, your world, especially when they're managing your assets. 
and um, leaning on relationships, especially those that might be established with people that are already part of your network is a good way to quickly vet and uh, test people and see if they're, they're going to be great for you as well. I just wanted to say real quick, that was a word right there when you said, be very careful and selective about who you allow into your world. I'm Listen, saying. I was about to start shouting because that's, <laughs> that's a word right there. It <laughs> is. It's real. Yep, and definitely leveraging your network. I think that's pre- that's a really big thing people yeah. be forgetting. I'm like, everybody in my circle is doing something. I, I know somebody's going to know someone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so true. So, okay. So the next question is, how do you transfer personal assets into a business or a trust? Hmm. Yeah. Um, so um, I'll be honest. I, I don't know that there's like, I don't know that I have the textbook answer uh, here, but there are a few ways that I might think about it. Um, so uh, when you're starting a business, you have the opportunity to Uh, take ownership over assets, which then you can incorporate into your taxes, you can move liability away from yourself into the business. So the business owning things can protect you um, from a liability standpoint, they can actually can actually be beneficial from a tax standpoint, because there's generally more that you can file taxes for when you're running an operation than than yourself. So a few different ways that you might do it are by selling those things, right? Well, that's, that's one option. So if I own a car, and I also own a business and I want to uh, leverage that car for the business, I could sell myself the car, sell the business the car. So the business would write me a check for you know 15,000 bucks if that's how much the car is worth. And now the business owns the car and also all the liability and, and the ability to file taxes on that car. Um, so that's one way there could be an actual transaction. Another way is uh, ensuring that the business expenses flow or the expenses flow through the business. So, um, so let's say I have a, um, you know, Verizon bill that, that previously was in my name. I'm not, I can't sell that bill to my business, but I can say, hey, if I want the business to own, um, you know, all of the things uh, involved around all, the, all these various services, including Verizon, uh, the business can take ownership over that bill and, and would be the person or the entity in that case okay. paying for, for that service. Um, so you can establish credit in that way too. When you put service accounts in the name of your business and you're paying for them on a regular basis, you can start building up business credit uh, as well. Um, I, honestly, outside of that, I can't think of many other ways that you might want to you know move assets into the business, but I honestly wouldn't overcomplicate it. Once you get to a certain level of business, like you're going to want to have your, your T's crossed and I's dotted. But, you know, for the listeners that are maybe just starting and, and, and starting their first businesses, and maybe you're a sole proprietorship where it's just you and you're not employing tons of people, I would say, keep it simple. You actually don't even need to um, like structurally separate the business from you. For example, with my business, Tones Pass, um, I file all of my business taxes through my personal taxes. And I'm able to do that because I don't have any full-time employees and all of my expenses just flow through the business. So keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate your life. Another thing that I'll say, and I'll caveat this by saying this is not tax or legal advice, and I do not want the IRS coming after me. (laughs) But um, uh, there are like, tax burden, there's a tax burden every single time you transact, right? So if you're selling something to a business, you owe the federal government something for that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're trying to do the good thing, the right thing by putting all the assets in the business name, and you're making all these transactions, and then reporting it to the federal federal government, they're going to come back and say, Oh, you had a bunch of business activity, you know, where's our money? Where's that money? um, 
not encouraging your listeners to hide expenses from the federal <laughs> government. You should be very careful about, um, you know, when it's worth it to do some of those transactions. Okay, perfect. Um, and then the next question we had was, is there anything else you want to touch on in regards to income before we go into the questions our listeners submitted about generational wealth? Well, I'm excited about generational wealth, so I'll, I'll keep my um, response here short. And sorry, my printer just went off, so you're gonna hear some background. <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> um, now, I, I think I would. The, the a lot of people are are kind of striving towards financial independence, which basically means, you know, I'm in charge of my own finances. I'm not dependent on anyone. I'm not like living check to check. I'm I'm free. I'm liberated. Um, cutting your cost is a way to do that, right? Being like diligent about your savings is a way to do that. But honestly, the best way to become financially free is to increase your earnings, right? And it's also the most fun way. Like no one wants to, <laughs> you know, not go to that Burner Boy con uh, concert, which I just spent like 600 bucks for <laughs> because they, it doesn't fit with their entertainment budget. Um, yeah. If we all have an opportunity to make more money, we should do that. How do you make more money? More money? You can get a second job. I know a lot of people working two, three jobs. It's tough, but it's possible. You can go to your current job and ask for more bread. Tough, but possible. Uh, you can diversify your sources of income. There's passive income, more active income, like you know, real estate or, or, or just you know, trading and various ways of investing. Uh, you can start a business. Um, you can um, uh, maybe contract or freelance for people but be very, very thoughtful about how you can bring more earnings into your life, more income into your life, even if it's not in the traditional sense through your nine to five. And I think that is gonna put you on a much smoother and faster path to financial freedom than any cost cutting or saving measures will do. So really excited to be talking about generational wealth. We, let, let, let's get there. But I also want your, your listeners to be thinking about uh, diversifying their income and, and finding more creative ways to bring money in. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, so then we go into the gener generational wealth section, right? So what is considered generational wealth? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because I, I use the phrase a lot. I don't think I've ever like defined it for folks. Um, I'll give you my, my definition for it and I'll break it down into the component parts. So wealth um, to me means uh, money doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. as simply put as I can make it, um, a lot of people are out here, you know, making a bunch of money and wearing a bunch of brands and money matters to them, right? Because I, mm -hmm. I see how much they're making and I see how much it hurts when they, <laughs> when they swipe that card. <laughs> um, so, so to me, wealth means like money is just a concept at that point. You have tons of it and you have enough of it that you, you don't really, you, you move around life in a way that whatever you need, you can spend it. And it doesn't really impact the amount of money that you, you have or need because it's making so much more of itself yeah. um, that you know the day-to-day -day expenses just don't really matter anymore. Uh, generational means it's beyond this generation. A lot of people get to that level in their lives and then don't set up structures to pass it on to their children and their children's children. And that's where wealth just becomes wealth and not generational wealth. But then you got, you know, families like the Rockefeller family and the, um, you know, the Walton family where literally no one who bears their name will ever, ever, ever have to worry about money. And they've set up institutions to ensure that generations of people never have to worry about money. 
So putting those two things together, generational wealth is ensuring that everybody that comes after you never has to worry about money. And that's a mission that I have for my life, my children and their children. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I want that. You, you already got that goose money. There you go. Here you go. Nah, y'all don't listen to her. <laughs> right. The next listener question that we have on the topic of generational wealth is, um, do you feel it's advisable to hire a wealth manager? Yeah, I mean, at some point, I would say, so I don't have a wealth manager. Um, I also don't consider myself wealthy. Um, definitely consider myself rich uh, and well off. And um, I'm earning a, you know, a lot of money. I'm also spending a lot of money and money matters <laughs> to me. Um, so I, I think wealth management um, becomes more of an imperative when you're making more money than you, the individual, are able to manage. And that's a very personal thing, right? Some people make, you know, tons of money and, you know, can manage all of it because they're financially savvy and they have a lot of time and they're interested and passionate about those things. Um, and they don't need a wealth manager. Some people make, you know, decent amount of money, but are so spread thin that they need someone to manage your money and they should get a wealth manager a little bit early. So it really comes down to who you are uh, how much money you're making and um, you know, whether or not you feel like you independently have the resources to manage it. So if you are at the point where um, there, there are kind of various levels of stability, right? The first level is, do you have a budget? Like, do you have a functional budget? Do you know how much you're making every month? Are you managing your expenses? And are you on some plan that's sustainable, right? If you, if you haven't checked that box, you should not have a wealth manager. The next is, are you actively investing in what I call your secure investments? That's things like your 401k and life insurance and 529 if you have kiddos and IRAs. If you're not doing those things, you probably shouldn't go to a wealth manager because while they can do that stuff, it's fairly simple and you're not going to get all the value by paying those people to do those fairly you know, simple things. So that's the second thing you should check. Third is, have you you know, toyed around or played around with, with investing? Like, have you actually gone on the market and seen how managing your own wealth works? You know, some people first need to figure out if they can do it on their own before they go out and, and get expertise. So if you haven't yet started looking into stocks and bonds and real estate and crypto, you should spend some time exploring those things so you independently can get sophisticated enough and savvy enough to invest on your own before you go out to a wealth manager. And then the fourth level I'd say is, do you have enough man assets under management to make it worth it for your manager and worth it for you? Um, there's a, a many different ways that wealth managers uh, charge for their services, but they will get paid for their services. Uh -huh. And you know, if you're investing a thousand bucks a year, probably not going to get the best service from a wealth manager because they're probably going to be making a few bucks a year on that. Um, but if you're investing, you know, a million dollars a year. Now you can have someone that's really invested in turning that million into two, three, four, every single year they're working with you. And it makes the value of the relationship that much better. So I would say kind of think through those levels. And at every level, you should be asking, do I need help? Do I need help? Do I need help? And you can get a financial planner before you get a wealth manager, right? So there's different forms of help. Oh. You get a financial coach before you get a financial planner or a wealth manager. There's different levels and types of help, but, but think about where you are and also what type of support you need before you jump into wealth management. Okay. All right, so then the next question is, how can we be more realistic um, when creating a timely emergency fund? Yeah, so um, the emergency fund is a really important thing to have. It's 
I, I encourage all of my clients and, and I'm going to caveat this by saying this is an alarmist statement. Um, you know, don't, don't like, don't, don't have a, a, a moment, a cardiac event. When I say this, <laughs> I, I encourage all of my clients and I encourage you to, and all your listeners as well to never save. Right. Like I, I don't save. Um, I don't, I don't believe in saving. I don't uh, support saving. I, I know what happens when you put your money in a savings account and the financial institution that's holding that money gives you, you know, 0 0.01 cents a year on, on your yeah. dollar. And, you know, and, and, and is making, you know, probably 13 or 14 cents a year on your dollar. Mm -hmm. So um, I have saved and it's important to save uh, until you reach some threshold level of savings, your emergency fund that is needed to uh, fulfill the need in your life. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Um, but I, I don't think we should be actively saving over the course of our lives because savings just is not, it's, it's not an avenue to create wealth. So there, there's so many other different ways that you can, um, you know, spend your money and or, or put your money in places that's better. So um, I think the question was how, how, um, how to be realistic in creating a timely emergency fund. The way I think about the emergency fund is how much money do I need to ensure that if something goes terribly wrong, we're good. And, and the we could be me, the we could be me and my family, the we could be me and my dependents, it could be me and like the homies. It's up to you to determine who you're saving for. Mm -hmm. But the way I think about it is I want three months of security. And why, why three months? Because I've gone on the job search multiple times and I know that I'm qualified, skilled, gifted enough to land a job that uh, pays me what I deserve and what I demand in as high as three months. I can probably do it in three weeks if I'm super aggressive, but if I give myself three months in the worst of scenarios, I lose my job or lose my income. If I give myself three months to work, I'm gonna be able to get you know at least what, what, I, what I lost back. Mm -hmm. So the three months of emergency savings covers my expenses, right? It's not my income. So my emergency fund is actually less than three months of my, um, of my income, it's just the mandatory things. If I shut down investing, if I shut down discretionary spending and just focus on the mandatory expenses and liabilities that I have, multiply that by three months, that's how much I need to be saving because in the event that something happens with my income, I need that stability. Now, the minute I've saved that, right? It might take me a year to save that. It might take me you know, two months to save that. But the minute I've saved that, I'm not putting anything else in the savings account because all that money could go to a different asset that's accruing more interest for me. So we should all have emergency funds. If you don't have an emergency fund, you know, set it up. Like from a timing standpoint, it should already be done. So do it ASAP. Uh, if it takes you some time to get there, that's fine. Uh, but I put it in a savings account or maybe a high yield interest account or even a CD account that's like liquid enough that you can access it if you need it. Um, but I wouldn't continue putting money into that once you've gotten that threshold limit and think about what expenses you and your lifestyle has and, and, and how much you would want to basically secure for yourself in the event that something went wrong. And you got me thinking now, I'm like, dang, I've been like stressed about, you know, having this savings account and saving. I'm like, dang, maybe I need to rethink this. <laughs> yeah, I'm of the same belief of that, that three to six months, depending on what kind of industry you are in, like how easy it is to find a new job if you were to lose yours. But I, I recommend three to six months of the emergency fund as well. And then over that, 
you know, invest it, make that money work mm-hmm. for you. Cause, cause I mean, I work in banking from my, my nine to five and I see that interest rates have plummeted even on the, the corporate level, like we're earning nothing. So we're moving our investments. So as, as individuals, we should mimic that. Okay, so um, it seems like from the way you answered the, qu- the last question that we had about the emergency fund that you are clearly pro-investing. So that ties into the next listener question we had, which is there's a percent that if we go by the, I forget, it's like the 50-30-20 rule or whatever, 50-30-30, yeah, 50-30-20 rule, whatever it is out there about how much you should save for your necessary expenses, how much you should spend on, you know, like for disposable income and things like that. But we're not really told how much uh, what percent of our income we should be investing. So what percent do you feel um, of our income we should be investing on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tough question to answer. I think there are general rules that I personally don't subscribe to because there are no general circumstances, mm-hmm. right? You could take another black man earning what I'm earning um, with uh, two kids like I have, and you know we could just be in a radically different situations. We could have two completely different debt burdens, two completely different um, lifestyles and expenses, two completely different uh, goals for how we want to live in our later years. So um, my my first piece of encouragement here for all your listeners is to not subscribe to these general rules, right? Because there isn't a general millionaire, right? Like every story is a little bit unique and you've got to figure out what works for you. And as you're thinking about how much you want to save, spend, and invest, think about your life, right? Because, you know, people don't talk about death a lot. I just lost a good friend a couple, a few days ago. Um, I'm sure you all have experienced loss. Like, you've got to live this life, right? And, like, no one wants to go out here and, like, spend 20% of their income because some financially savvy guy told you to spend it and, like, not live your life. So goal number one, like, live your life. Right. Like, you know, even if that means spending more than, you know, uh, Dave Ramsey or whoever is telling you you need to be spending, that's fine. Live your life and make sure, you know, while you're here on earth, um, you know, you're spending what you need to to live a life of meaning and purpose and, and fulfillment. And the way that you actually should think about the balance between spending, saving, and investing is based on your goals. If a goal of yours is eating at a fancy five star restaurant once a month, then you should plan for that. Now, you've got to be financially realistic about it, right? You've got to start from your top line, which is how much is coming in and like make it work in your budget. But you can make a bunch of different things work in your budget. A goal of mine is having $5 million of liquid assets solely for my children by the time I'm of my retirement years. So I've developed my secure investments, right? So my um, retirement investments in my 529 to um, build towards that. And you can actually model this out. It's not like a goal that you throw out there and like pray that it's going to happen. You can look at the performance of stocks and bonds and various asset classes and actually measure how much uh, how much you're, you're expected to have in a certain amount of time based on how much you're putting in, uh, how regular those contributions are, and the expected return on your investment, right? So figure out what your goals are, your, your short-term goals, how you want to live your life, and your long, long-term goals, how much liquidity you want to have so that you can pass on a certain amount to your children or withdraw a certain amount every year without having to worry about that, that drying up and, and make that uh, flow to, to your budget, which is how much you're planning to save, spend, and invest. So I did not answer your question, but I also don't think that you know a general rule should apply for all of us. You should create a goal and create a budget that works for your life 
And if your expenses happen to be more or less than mine, so be it. You know, hopefully mm -hmm. we both can be happy living our different ways. Yep, agree. Yeah. So, so then what do you think is the better investment? Is it stocks or real estate? Yeah, I mean, I'll answer in two ways. Um, the first way is I, I'm really good at not answering questions. You guys will. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You drop it. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at the um the the titles to some of your 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 previous shows, and I was cracking up. Right, and I was like, I wonder what these girls are gonna make the title of my show. And I feel like it needs to be like he don't answer no questions or something. Like that. <laughs> so to not answer your question, um, I don't think one is better. I think they're both awesome. We all should like fully diversify, including those you know two asset classes and, and many others. Um, if I'm being honest, I think real estate is the only real asset class. Like almost everything else, including dollars goes away. Um, you know, someone tomorrow could say that the United States dollar is, is done, right? Like we have no trust in it, they're printing too much and, and that completely tanks our economy. Someone could say, you know, Amazon, the most, you know, viable, one of the most valuable companies on, on earth is, um, you know, doomed and we're gonna see a tank in the next two years and that plummets the stock. Um, someone could, you, you, we see what's going on with the volatility in cryptocurrency, um, collectibles, which can have a lot of upside, like, you know, all the Van Goghs and Basquiat's of the world. That's just perception. There's nothing that makes that inherently more valuable than any other painting. It's just what some rich snobby person says about the value of that art. Real estate is different. Real estate has utility. Um, it's a physical product. Um, it generally scales. So smaller real estate typically is less expensive than larger real estate. So it's intuitive. And when you look at the wealthiest people, they own a lot of stuff, right? Yes, like do. I'd imagine they own a lot of stuff because they can own a lot of stuff. I also imagine they own a lot of stuff because they realize it's a pretty safe place to put their money. We're always going to need places to live, to work, to reside, especially because the population uh, is still increasing globally. So um, I don't favor real estate to anything else. I love my, my real estate properties. I also love the stocks that I have. I love my cryptocurrency. I love my... Um, angel investing. Um, I encourage your your um, listeners to fully diversify, learn all the different places that you can put your money and try to get into as many of these as possible. Um, but if I had to choose one for, you know, long-term wealth generation and transfer, I think real estate is, is one of the most stable and secure, um, secure asset classes and, and would encourage us to at least own our own homes and if possible, other properties after that. Okay. So it seems like from how you answered that question that you really value real estate, although like you said, a diverse portfolio is most important. Um, but a question that we received is, what, was, what is the quickest appreciating asset that you can have in your portfolio? So can you speak to that? Yeah. Quickest appreciating asset. Um, there isn't really a he don't answer no questions i'm sorry <laughs> I'm here like yo can i give these people an honest answer like, i think the issue is like like these are hard challenging complex questions and there really isn't one way to, yeah. to get to the bag so um i mean i've had some pretty quick appreciating assets where i struck gold there's a property we got in atlanta as an example um that was right on the belt line and literally months after we closed on the property, before we put a dollar into uh, in, into like um, rehabs, mm -hmm. there's a huge development like in the community and property values went up like 30%. Oh, so wow. we made something like 70,000 bucks like in weeks just by wow. that happening. Yeah, it was pretty dope. 
Um, so, I mean, that was a pretty quickly appreciating asset, but we didn't plan for that. And it was a little bit of like, you know, luck and, and fortune. And I'd be lying if I said, you know, if you find property in Atlanta on the belt line, it's going to increase, you know, 30% in value just like that. Um, so, I mean, th there are asset classes that are more volatile. If you look at what's going on with cryptocurrency as an example, you'll see a lot of swings up and a lot of swings down. Um, if you look at people who trade options, right, if you have some level of sophistication to be able to read charts and know when certain movements are going to happen, or you have information that suggests that certain companies are making certain types of plays, you can bet on the market and, and you know, catch a nice up or down tick. Um, I think that kind of blurs the line between gambling and investing, and I, I stay away from it personally. Um, there are ways to make money quickly, but anything that appreciates quickly has the risk of depreciating quickly. Mm -hmm. And you've got to understand that it's not all upside. So um, as, if you're looking for a quick buck, I would suggest that you look for more conservatism. So, you know, you might not double your money in a year, but maybe you could like, you know, do a five or 10% uh, increase on your investment in a year. If you're doing that, then, or if you're okay with that, then um, there's a bunch of different ways you can do that on or off the market. If you're looking for high upside and quick upside, uh, tread lightly because, you know, where there's high upside, there's probably high downside too. Yeah, yeah. So are there any um, passive income options that you recommend? Yeah. Um, so I got into like what I call debt financing a few mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, and basically, um, so just to add some, some more education here, uh, th there are two main ways you can make money by investing. One is called equity and one is called debt. Mm -hmm. Equity is ownership. So all stocks are equity. Um, you know, bonds are, oh, sorry, bonds are debt. All stocks are equity. If you own, um, you know, currency, that's equity. If you own real estate or, um, you know, uh, some other form of collectibles, that's equity. Um, debt is basically borrowing or loaning someone money where you don't own the business or the asset, but you own a contract that says, I'm going to get a certain amount, amount back from the owner of that business or asset for giving them this loan. So generally debt is a little bit um, less volatile, like you, it's more stable, but you earn less. Um, but um, like, it's important to diversify across both, both asset classes. And with passive um, or with debt financing, uh, what I discovered a few years ago is there's a bunch of people that have assets, right, that need money for things. And uh, if you can find people that are raising money for um, you know, maybe it's a small business that needs capital injection to bring a product to market. Um, my favorite thing to do is uh, investing with our real estate developer in Philadelphia. I don't own any of his properties, but every single month he's raising money because he buys all these plots of land in, in various dilapidated parts of the, of the county and, uh, you know, builds up these beautiful, beautiful homes. He built my home in Philadelphia and uh, banks don't fund or they won't give you a loan for the land or for the construction, right? So the mm -hmm. only thing they'll give you the loan for is the actual property because you know, they, they can't, until people can actually live there, it's, it's a bad investment for them to give you money for something that's not completed. Mm -hmm. So all these developers basically need to bootstrap their own operations mm -hmm. or work with very, very sophisticated banks uh, 
uh, or students sophisticated, very like risk tolerant banks or you know high net worth individuals that are sitting on a bunch of capital and are able to give them loans. So if you can tap into someone like that, a developer or someone with a small business that isn't wanting to give away part of their equity, that's this side of things, the, 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 um, the first thing I teed up, uh, but wants some short-term capital so they can get to their finish line and is willing to give you, um, you know, a debt note, you can make some decent money passively off that. So, you know, we're making somewhere between 10 and 20% per annum, which means, you know, for every hundred bucks we give this guy, uh, you know, we're getting an additional 10 to 20 bucks a year. Um, doesn't seem like a bunch of money, but if you do that passively for years, you know, in a pretty, you know, continuous fashion, you can see how, you know, the money can add up pretty quickly. So yeah, that's, that's probably my favorite passive tool. And that's a better return on your income than if you put that money into a bank account right now, because like yeah. you mentioned earlier in the episode, interest rates are like 0.003%. At the that. bank? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, I mean, he is my bank account. Like whenever I have extra <laughs> cash, I just hit this guy up and I'm like, bro, you got another project? He's like, yeah, wire it over. Sign a promissory note and we're there. So um, yeah, way better than a bank account. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so earlier you touched on um, 529, which is like a college savings plan, but we had a listener ask, what are some ways that you can recommend investing for children? So kind of setting your kids up from now um, to be able to have that generational wealth. Yeah, so 529 for sure, especially if you're in a state that does uh, a match or you know, the, or the, the tax, well, most states have the tax benefit, meaning uh, all the money you put into the 529 is basically tax exempt. Um, my state, Maryland, or our state, Maryland, has um, uh, for a certain, for under a certain income level, a match where they'll give a certain amount of money basically for free. Uh, and you can basically like, you know, make money off of just investing in the 529. So it's a good thing to have, even if you don't max it out or put tons of money into it, everyone should, if you have kids, consider doing the 529. Uh, one hack that I just learned which I'm still figuring out. I haven't set this up for the girls yet, but it's like on my list for 22 is actually starting an IRA for your kids. So IRAs are individual retirement accounts. Um, and they're sorry, not IRA. Um, Roth, A Roth yeah, IRA. Roth IRA. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so they're, they're tax exempt individual retirement accounts. And, uh, they're all they're traditionally used for people who are of working age. Mm -hmm. So you can put a certain amount up to a certain amount, and it's tax exempt, meaning you won't get taxed on it. And it grows tax free. And that's money you can use in your retirement year. So the issue is you can't touch it until you you've retired. But it's there. federal government can't take any money from it. And it grows tax free. Now, you can open up Roth IRAs for your kids. And you can pay them as if they are your employees. Oh, so if you know. employ your kids, it's awesome. If you employ your kids mm -hmm. uh, to work for your business, you got to have a business to do it. I think you can pay them up to $12,000 per kid per year. So for me, I got two kids. That's $24,000 that I could pay my kid. Now, since I'm paying them into a Roth IRA, it's tax exempt meaning I'm taking $24,000 and just slicing that off my income and saying, Uncle Sam, you can't have it. Mm -hmm. Now I'm giving that $24,000 to my two kiddos and since it's in their Roth IRAs, they grow tax-free. So once it's in that account, you can do whatever you want with it, right? You can buy real estate, you can buy um, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. So you can invest it as if you're investing, you know, any other traditional retirement account. So you can get access to most of the wealth generating vehicles, uh, that are available on all those markets. 
um, even within the Roth IRA for the kiddos. So you're benefiting in like so many different ways. And I think that's a really, really cool thing for, for new parents to think about. Yeah, that's good. See, you done, you done dropped a lot of knowledge for our <laughs> listeners and for us today. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some resources you would recommend for learning about building generational wealth? Ooh, all right. Can I, is this like the point in the show when I can like, you know, push my own agenda a little bit? Well, that's the next question we have. <laughs> that's the next question. Tie, you can tie yep. in the next okay. question with this one. So yep. if, if these resources are your own, plug them. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say, I'll say a few things. Uh, w- one is this isn't a resource, but it's, it's kind of like a philosophy, um, like being intellectually curious about things and inserting yourself into communities where other people are curious about those same things. Yeah. I think together it almost ensures that you get the access and exposure that you need to learn something in order to do something. So I'm in a bunch of, you know, uh, group me's, WhatsApp's, Facebook groups, email threads, like, so many different communities of people who simply had questions, right? Like no one came to these communities as experts. It was just like, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to like trade. And then months later, we've all kind of developed expertise together. So my favorite resource is actually the communities that I'm part of with people who understand my unique experience in life and are are kind of developing expertise uh, and sharing opportunities with each other. So whether it be friends, family members, or something you search online, like find a group of people um, who are, you know, curious about the things that, that you're curious about and, and learn from and with them. Um, I also like podcasting. So, so I, I used to be a big reader uh, in my adult life. I just, I can't will myself to sit down and like flip pages of a book. So generally when I'm working out or commuting to work, I'll, I'll pop in a podcast and, and learn that way. Um, my favorite financial podcasts are, uh, I'd say Earn Your Leisure, um, uh, two brothers from New York that um, have done a really, really cool kind of amalgamation between financial literacy and hip hop in a way that just like did not exist before. And, you know, they bring in some of our hip hop moguls and, and, and leaders in the black community to talk about like very, very complex financial things and plays in a very simple way. So I love Earn Your Leisure. Um, I love Bigger Pockets. It's an investing podcast that uh, talks about all the different ways that you can invest your money. Uh, my favorite uh, episodes are about real estate and they have a podcast on the Burr method, B-R-R-R-R, which is buy, uh, rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat. But it's a way to, going back to real estate as an asset class, it's a way to amass a significant number of properties in a short amount of time. And um, if you listen to that particular podcast, I don't remember the episode number, but if you search Bigger podcast, or sorry, bigger pockets, um, the B R R R R podcast. I think you'll find that just incredibly enlightening, and, and hopefully you'll you'll uh, find more episodes that are that do the same for you. So I love bigger podcast uh, pockets, excuse me. Um, and then any other podcast that um you know I just might might come across or people might send to me that seem interesting, I'll at least give it a shot and listen to it on two X until I you know I, I decide I want to listen a little bit more intently and I'll slow it down. But podcast is is a really, really cool and low lift way for me to get get the knowledge I need. Um, the few like selfish things that I'll say are uh, we recently, uh, we being me and my uh, Georgia Tech classmates, uh, recently started an investment group called Cascades, uh, Cascades Ventures Group. Um, it is awesome and it will be awesome. And we're going to be bringing a lot of really, really cool opportunities to our community um, but the mission is to build the next generation of investors and, and entrepreneurs. 
And um, we uh, several years ago came together and just started like sharing our experiences and investing and realized that all of us had done tons of different things, you know, traditional stuff like stocks and bonds, non-traditional things like angel investing and venture capital, starting businesses, advising businesses, uh, selling businesses. And we realized that our experiences were um, a little bit unique when we compare them to many of our peers. Uh, so what this investment group is, is part education, part uh, access, and part ownership. The education is really rolling our sleeves up and you know, coaching the heck out of folks that are part of the, the network and letting them know kind of how we built what we built and how they can as well. Uh, so leaving all the investors feeling empowered to kind of, you know, implement their own investment strategies. Uh, access is bringing deals to the network. So we'll be bringing angel deals, real estate deals, uh, passive debt deals, um, some that we are participating in, some that we're just passing through. So people who don't have access to some of the cool things that we've done are able to get it through the network. Uh, and then the third is ownership. We'll be providing opportunities to co-invest with the Cascades team uh, through you know, syndicates or maybe even like sub LLCs where we're starting businesses to invest in other businesses so that we all can own the things that we're investing in, all aligned to our thesis of bridging the health, wealth, and digital divides in the Black community. And then last thing I'll say is my own business, Tones Professional Advisory Solutions and Services. I've been coaching now for two years. I've been loving it. Uh, while we started this conversation with landing your dream job and earning your dream income, uh, what I'm really passionate about is helping people build generational wealth. Um, that to me is kind of like the stepping stone. You've got to get that dream income and then figure out what to do with your money. Uh, but I have quite a few coaching programs and experiences and resources that I share with uh, you know, clients and people that I speak to to help them take full control over their finances and learn the tactics of, of building generational wealth through investment strategizing. So um, if you're looking for more info on uh, my programs, you can go to purposefullypaid.com uh, and download a free resource there that kind of talks through my framework and how it literally has been changing lives of professionals that have had the opportunity to go through some of our coaching programs and experiences. You you done wrapped it all up, put it with a bell. I know. I know. Like <laughs> so I answered one question. There we go. <laughs> you answered a couple. You answered a couple. Yeah, I feel yeah. like people listening in, they got a bunch of gems. If you yeah, know they care to, to receive those, they could be set up very well. And then you, you left us off with your website so that if they want some more knowledge and education for 2022, boom, they could go right there. there exactly. So we gave y'all the keys. Right. <laughs> yeah, say we never gave y'all nothing. Okay. Right. <laughs> Leah, thank you so much. This was this was awesome. You know, it's really mm -hmm. important for us to talk or have these conversations so that we can build up our black community. So sure. I think this is important. So thank you so much, Tony. Yeah, yeah. no problem. And thanks for what y'all doing. This is this is really dope. I'm really excited to see how this episode turns out and uh, happy <laughs> to continue supporting y'all. Thanks for the invite. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay, so now it's time for the loud lyrics. This week, I chose a song by Nia Sultana. So I, I be finding music randomly sometimes. <laughs> but the name of the song is uh, Ambience. Um, and so the song is kind of like, just about 
a guy fumbling the bag, basically. Ooh, he not. Sounds about right. <laughs> I love it already. Right? So it's, it was a vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, I should have probably said ambiance, huh? But the A is not there. But, yeah, I was so, like, did but, you spell it like this? No, that's the name. That's the name of that's the song. Wild. It's with an E. Okay. So that's why I didn't know. Yeah, how do you even pronounce it? <laughs> I don't like, All right. So, but that's the spelling, y'all. So it's not that I said it. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. Yeah, no, that's not true. That's not true. But, but no, that's the song that I choose. And yeah, it's a vibe. And so I, you, you guys should check it out. Ambiance. Yes. Um, so my choice for this week's loud lyric is tying with our uh, topic of the episode. Uh, it's called Water in My Plants, and it's by Larry June. Mm-hmm. And this is another one, if you've heard, you know, past episodes where I referenced, like, Spotify Radio. This is one <laughs> that came from on Spotify Radio, and it's a bop. So yeah, yeah. he's a rapper, um, mm-hmm. and he seemed like he's from uh, the West Coast just from his flow. But yeah. he sampled the song. Okay, so this is going to be a chain, y'all. Okay. <laughs> Two degrees of separation. So follow so, you. Okay, okay, so Mary J. Blige, you know, like, one of her first, like, singles, her biggest singles was My Life. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So that song, she samples this like older song, My Life in the Sunshine or something like that. I think it's called yep. Sunshine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he samples that song as well okay. on Watering My Plants. And what he's talking about, he's talking real shit. He's talking about um, kind of like getting away from materialism and being intentional with how he invests his money. Mm-hmm. So Watering My Plants is like a euphemism for like growing his green, right? yeah, like yeah. getting his money right. And then... You know, in the middle of the song, he starts like you know spitting game at a woman, and he changes up the chorus to be like, "Let me water your plants, hey. like you know, like let me put into you, let me build my community, and you know, whatever." Yeah. So it's dope. The same. I'm good. I'm here for a good sample. Me too. And I'm also here just for like music that's like enriching, like yep. not talking about you know bitches, hoes, whatever. Yep. But like, yep. hey, let me let me invest in you, queen. Yes. Okay, that's, that's that's the kind of vibes I like to be on. <laughs> the positive. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So if you have any questions or if you would like to be a guest, feel free to slide in our DMs or shoot us an email at blunttruthspod at gmail.com. As always, be sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. We are at Blunt Truths Pod on all of them. Thanks for listening to another episode. It's been real. Bye. Bye, y'all. Dance, 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 dance,